The words I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are of John. We'll be looking at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had God and was going back to God, rose from supper He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you were clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, the one who sent me. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would lead us through your word. And God, we don't want merely to be instructed. We want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We, we don't want to only know what you call us to, but we actually want to do what you've called us to. And so we ask for great grace that you would work through your word, the spirit you would work in our hearts. You would both give us understanding and, and, and also inflame our hearts with an affection for you so that we would live out what you call your disciples to do here. Lord, that we would be a church of such Christ-like servants. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So this is a joyful day in the life of our congregation uh, because after years of praying that God would would grant us more leaders than the church, uh, he has answered that prayer. And uh, we're going to install both two elders as well as two deacons. In his sovereignty, he's just chosen to do both at the same time, which we're very grateful for. And so today's message is particularly given as a charge to them. And then immediately, well, at the very end of our service, I should say, we will install them. I'll lay hands on them and, and they will begin their work in serving us. But it's a particularly a charge given to them, this message. But it, even as I prayed, it has application for all of us as Christ's followers. And John chapter 13 is Christ's instruction to Christian leaders. It's in this passage that he gives a very, very, very clear instruction, even by his own example, of what he expects his followers to do and how they're to lead the church. In this passage, Jesus presents three elements of instruction to Christian leaders. That is, he gives the motives of leadership, verses 1 through 3, the model of leadership in 4 through 11, and then the mandate of leadership, 12 through 17. Let's look, first of all, at the motives of leadership, verses 1 through 3. Notice again, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. In this very first verse in this passage, John makes it very explicit what was the driving motive in everything that Jesus did. And particularly this act. It was that of love. And notice he, He loved a particular group. It says His own. That is, the disciples whom he had called to follow him. The phrase was used before in John chapter 10 with the metaphor of the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Now, it's true that God does love the world in a general sense. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But he loves his elect ones in a particular way. Just like a husband, a Christian husband is called to love everybody. He loves all women, but he loves his wife in a very particular way, in a devoted way. Likewise, Christ loves his church in a very particular way. And John also notes that Jesus' love is expressed in a particular sphere, that of the world. Jesus knows that his time has come to depart out of this world, and he will now be leaving his disciples who have followed him over the last three years. They will be left on their own in this world. He's leaving behind those he loves and knowing that it won't be easy for them in the years ahead. So husbands, just imagine if if you knew, like Christ did, that your time to die had come. You were in your last hours. And you knew you were going to be leaving your, your wife and your children to uncertainty. The anxiety that would be upon your mind, your concern for them. 
for their vulnerability without your protection and guidance. This is similar to how Christ feels. Now, he, of course, knows they're in the Father's hands. The Spirit will come and comfort them and guide them. But he doesn't want to leave them. He doesn't want to leave them. But he's choosing to leave them because he loves them. We have to understand this about Christ. He's choosing to leave them. They'll be without him, without his protection, without his guidance. But unless he dies, they cannot be saved. And so his leaving them is particularly expressed in that final phrase. Notice, he loved them to the end. That word, that word in Greek is telos. Telos is where we get the word maturity from. It means love in completeness, love to its fullest extent. And he was about to demonstrate this love to its extent by paying the price for their sins on the cross in just a few hours time. And John mentions this because the point in Jesus washing the disciples feet is not just simply that he wants to be a good example to him. Now, he does. We'll see that. But he mentions this because he wants us to know the motive for why Jesus does what he does. He does it because he loves them. It's his love that's driving this. It's not just obligation. He loves them. It's his love that leads to the sacrifice. And Christian leaders are not merely to act humble or even just to pursue humility. We're to serve because of love for others. Love needs to be the driving motivation in our ministry. And someone might ask, well, what if I don't love? What if I struggle to love others? What if I find people more annoying and frustrating? And when I try to serve them, it's, it's more difficult than compelling. Well, I would say, well, you probably shouldn't be leading in ministry. But even more so, you should question if God has really changed your heart. Because the very first fruit of the Spirit that's mentioned is love. In fact, the the Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Moreover, Paul is very explicit in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we seek to serve one another, if we seek to minister to one another and, and are not driven by love, we're no better than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We're just obnoxious and annoying at best. We won't be fruitful. We will just be irritating. If we're not loving the people that irritate us, we're not helping them. We're just irritating them. We're not helping them grow. And so we have to be driven by love. And, that's, and we see this from Christ. Christian leaders humbly serve because they love. And humility and love go together like a hand in a glove. Just like Pride and selfishness go together. Really, humility and love are the opposite of pride and selfishness. And so how does one grow in love and in humility? Because if we're honest, we struggle to do this. If we rightly understand love, we all struggle to love. Well, I think, first of all, we need to recognize God's immense love for us. 
we will not effectively love one another unless we first understand how greatly the Father loves us, how greatly Christ and the Spirit love us. And not just understand it, not just know this intellectually, but experientially. And and I'm not trying to be mystical when I say that. It's like the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting that it's sweet. Do you know how much the Father loves you? Does, are you held by that love? Are you comforted by that love? Are you strengthened by that love? Or is it merely a doctrinal idea that you believe to be true? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Until you, t- until you receive that love, experience that love, know that love for yourself, you will struggle to love others. Because it's God's, knowing God's great love for us that frees us and empowers us to love others. That's where the source of it. That's where it begins. And so if you find yourself struggling to love as you're called to love, as we're all called to love, that's where you need to go. Meditate day in, day out on the great love of God as it's exhibited in Christ and know God's great love for you in Christ. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God so loved us, the infinite, holy God who needed nothing, if He so loved us, how, how much more should we love one another? 1 John four ten through 11 So we need to know God's love for us if we're going to grow in love and humility. But secondly, we need to actively train ourselves to stop thinking about ourselves. We, in our flesh, we're just naturally thinking about what we want, how we feel, what we want to do. And we need to actively train ourselves not to be thinking about ourselves, how we feel, what we want, but instead other people. We need to be constantly thinking about what are other people's needs and fixate our time, our ambitions, our desires on meeting those needs. Assuming those needs are biblical needs. We need to ask, what does God want for these people? And how can I help them realize God's desire for them? And such patterns of thinking are what's going to produce biblical love and biblical humility. Remember that exhortation given to all Christians. Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see that pattern. It's in Christ was focused on obeying the Father, recognizing what our needs were. He loved us, and therefore he laid down his life for us. And he, he was focused on us. He wasn't thinking about what he wanted. Even in leaving them, he wasn't thinking about what he wanted. He died because he loved them. He left them because he loved them. 
And this is all what is being demonstrated symbolically by Christ in John 13. So verse two also provides another motive for Christian ministry besides his love. It shows us his resilience to be faithful to the end. It was his resilience to faithfulness that gave Christ remarkably thick skin. And I say that because of what it says in verse two. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's when he washed Judas's feet. Christ knew what was going to happen. He knew I was going to happen. And he goes out of his way to provide the context. John goes out of the way to provide the context of Jesus foot washing because he wants us to realize that Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. And yet he still served him in an incredibly humiliating way. And yet Jesus loved him even then. And that provides an example for other Christian leaders that our commitment to serve other people is not based upon their faithfulness to us, but rather our faithfulness to the Father. Because the reality is there will be people who slander you, who insult you, who um, lie about you. One of the remarkable patterns I've seen in reading missionary biographies is how often missionaries' ministries are hurt most, not by angry natives that are frustrated because their religion is being torn down by the gospel, but usually the ministries are hurt most by fellow missionaries who slander those missionaries to their uh, sending agencies. And, and often those misunderstandings aren't resolved for years. Funding gets cut off. These people are labeled as heretics and it's all because of lies. If you're only willing to serve people who value and appreciate your service, brothers, you will eventually quit. Because it will happen. And most people will never have any idea of the, the sacrifices, the burdens that you bear. And that's okay. Because you're going to make those sacrifices not because you want to be noticed, not because you're doing it to be appreciated, but you're doing it because you want to be faithful to God. And because you love the people God has called you to serve. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. There will be people you will love and serve who will attack you, your character, your family, your integrity. And just just know it's going to happen and and know God's sovereign over it. Turn your Bibles actually to, to Matthew chapter six. It's knowing what God's called us to that will keep us faithful. It's not how people respond to us that drives Christian leaders, but our desire to honor Christ. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us this on this subject. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And what's Jesus' point? Serve not because of what other people do or think, just serve because the Father sees you. And when you serve because you're trying to honor the Father and out of faithfulness to Him alone, that's when you will be blessed. You will be rewarded for that. Don't expect the reward now, but it will come. The reward is coming. And verse 2 shows us that Jesus' love for others was independent of how others treated Him. He was resilient to be faithful. And verse 3 provides a third reason behind Jesus' act of humility. He understood His purpose. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand, that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, if you look at this verse, it is loaded with theological implications. It demonstrates that Jesus was fully conscious of His deity and His sovereignty when He did this. But John's emphasis is actually on how this motivated Jesus to serve His disciples. It was because He knew He was God. It was because... He was in control of all things that motivated his act of humility. So just think about that. Because he knew he was God, he humbled himself to the lowest degree. Right? Philippians 2.6. Jesus, even though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. Jesus is exemplifying that principle that he taught his disciples that the greatest among you will be your servant, your slave. And the greatest, most godlike person is the one who has such confidence in God, in God's power, in God's purposes, that he's completely able to let his pride and ambition go. And it was Paul's understanding of his calling that led to his self-denial. When he spoke his final words to the elders of Ephesus, he said, I don't count my life of any account. As precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul did what he did because he understood his life was no longer his own. It had already been sold to his king. It belonged to his king. And in this, he was following the example of his king. He was doing what his king did. One might say, well, but Jesus knew he was God. That's why he humbled himself. But I know I'm not God. But that's actually the point. If the God of all the universe was willing to humble himself to the lowest degree. Then we should be willing to humble ourselves to any degree. Jesus actually makes this point explicit a few verses later in verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Samuel Rutherford once wrote this. Speaking of Christ, he came to the very bottom of hell to scoop me out as his jewel. He came below me to lift me up, to save me. 
Oh, the Lord Jesus is a wonderful, stooping Savior. The more you understand the example of our Lord and Savior, the one you truly serve, the more willing you will be to humbly serve others. This brings us to the second teaching point. Christ gives the model leadership. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When, when Jesus laid aside his outer garments, what he was doing was he was taking on the appearance of a slave. If somebody were to walk into the room and see Jesus in, in dressed in virtually his underwear with a towel wiping feet, their immediate conclusion would be this is these people's slave. The task of foot washing was so menial that according to some Jewish services, Jewish slaves were actually exempt from performing it. It was something only reserved for Gentile slaves because it was too demeaning. And this is the God of all the universe wiping their feet. It was an immensely humiliating act. I mean, just notice the words that are used. He rose. He laid aside. Taking a towel. Tied it. Poured water. He began to wash. Wipe. And this, of course, is why Peter resists. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus' point is, is that if I don't humble myself to clean you, you cannot be clean. I, again, it's symbolic of what Jesus is about to do. He's humbling himself to the, he's about to humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he's showing them that in order for me to cleanse you, I have to humble myself to the greatest degree possible. To be hung on a cross on account of other people's sins. This is what I'm calling you to do then, he says to his disciples. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so this principle holds for Christian leaders as well. I mean, just consider how Paul applies this principle to leaders of the home. He says in... Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the Word. If the primary goal of a Christian husband is to have a sanctified and pure wife, which it should be, then it's going to require that he give himself up for her. He sacrifices his wants, his desires for her. That's Paul's point. The cleansing comes through humiliation. Husbands, to love your wives like Christ loved the church will require you to humble yourself. Maybe be humiliated because you want to see your wife cleansed. 
cleansing comes through humble sacrifice. And the principle holds for Christian leaders, all Christian leaders, which is what Christ is trying to teach them. To be effective in ministry, you need to take on the mindset of humility, not exaltation. It's their needs, not your wants. Ask yourself, what do they need? What do they need? What do I have to give up? What do I have to do to meet their needs? Recall the words Jesus spoke earlier in John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see the connection. The bearing of fruit happens when the seed dies. The cleansing happens through death, through humiliation. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Right? We, we live in a, in, a, in a culture that talks about effectiveness in ministry being done by having just the right program, just the right branding, just the right music. You're not going to find that in Scripture. You want to know how to have an effective ministry in your home, in your community group, in your counseling, in your friendships, in your evangelism? It's through humble sacrifice. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. And Peter resists the Lord's action because it's so awkward and uncomfortable to have somebody who's clearly greater than you humbling himself to serve you. But that's precisely the point Jesus is trying to teach them. Their greatest need can only be accomplished if he humbles himself. It's the only way it can happen. And likewise, they will be most effective in following his lead as they seek to humbly sacrifice themselves. And so, so brothers, there is no task too low for a Christian leader. That's the point. You, there is no such thing that, as a task that is beneath your dignity. Because if the Lord of the, all the universe not only washed his disciples' feet, but died for their sins, there is nothing beneath you. You need to recognize that in taking this mantle of church leadership, all of Christ's people are now above you. All of them. The toddlers are above you. The poor, the needy, the disabled, the weak, those with special needs, they're all above you. You're their servant. That's Christ's point. If you've been appointed to Christian leadership. And Jesus makes this clear in the mandate he gives. Verses 12 through 17. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
So this demonstrates that Christ is not merely providing an example. He's giving a command. He's giving a mandate. These are the disciples' marching orders. This is how I expect you to do ministry. This is how I expect you to lead the church. This is how you're to do your work. In fact, the Greek word example that you see there, hupodegma, means to give an example by means of instruction. That's what the word means. Jesus is teaching them how to do the ministry. It's seminary in a picture. Now, nowadays, to learn to do something new, we typically turn on YouTube. And they just show us, hey, how to fix whatever's wrong with your car, how to build a new wall in your home. The video will show us how to get the job done. And similarly, Jesus is telling the disciples, if they want to be effective in ministry, this is how to get the job done. Humble yourself. If you want to do it right, do what I do is what he's saying. Now, when I was trained in ministry, uh, I was trained to seek to do all, all the tasks of ministry with excellence. He, he, you know, the, my leaders would tell me that again and again. They would do everything with excellence. And that's good. I mean, what they meant is do every task to the best of my ability. And I think there's some good to this. If we're going to do something for God, we should want to do our best because... There is no greater goal. There's no greater person we can serve than the Lord. So if we're going to give our bosses the best at work, people who don't really love us, in fact, they're more or less using us, at least in most cases, if we're going to give them our best, how much more should we give the Lord of all the universe our best? This is a good principle. Right? That's why we wear our best on Sundays. That's why I wear a tie. It's not because I'm more spiritual by wearing a tie. It's because I recognize I'm serving my king. I want to honor him above all everything else. And so I appreciate the motive behind doing ministry with excellence. But I think the far more biblical principle is we need to seek to do our work with humility. That's the principle Jesus is teaching. Effective ministry isn't done by excellence. It's through humility. In fact, if you truly are humble, you will seek to do your best. It's the humility that drives diligence. Another way to put this is on the converse. The greatest stumbling block to a person's ministry is their pride. The greatest hindrance to fruitfulness in ministry is pride. Because pride quenches grace. It actually, it actively stifles it. It's like, it's like suffocating a fire. The fire would burn bright, but you take all the oxygen away, it dies. And God's grace and pride are like acid and bases. They, they, they're, they contradict one another. They quench one another. Mutually exclusive. And that's why Peter and James both, in both of their epistles, remind us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes one and then he pours grace on the other. And this is why John Newton once advised a young pastor, if the Lord is pleased to bless you, he will undoubtedly make you humble, for you cannot be either happy or safe 
or have any probable hope of abiding usefulness without sincere humility. I think Newton learned that from experience and a careful study of Scripture. Martin Luther said something similarly. He said, The Holy Ghost resists the proud and will not dwell with them. Although some preachers for a time diligently study in Holy Scripture and teach and preach Christ uprightly, yet as soon as they become proud, God excludes them out of the church. That's why Jonathan Edwards issued this warning about pride in ministry. Pride is the main handle by which Satan has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Pride clogs the work of God, Edwards says. Spiritual pride is the main spring or at least the main support of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. So we see from all these great leaders in Christian history and from Scripture, pride is the greatest hindrance to our spiritual growth, to our seeking to help others grow spiritually. And humility is the great fertilizer for it. Right? We know that God's grace is most magnified in our weakness. This is why. Because when we're weak, when we're dependent, when we recognize our need, God's grace is then strong. As Paul said, God's grace is made perfect in my weakness. And when our ministries are driven by grace and not our own strength, they're most effective. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Paul recognized it wasn't his effort that made his ministry effective. It was the grace of God in him. And that because he was humble, caused him to work harder than anybody else. But it wasn't his hard work. It was grace. And it was grace that was made powerful because he understood his weakness. He understood he, in and of himself he couldn't bring about the fruitfulness. And therefore, brothers, as we seek to serve Christ's church, we need to humble ourselves so that God's grace might be free to work its magnificent power through us. And we can do this best by embracing the right motives to ministry, love, resilience to be faithful, understanding our calling by following Christ's model of ministry, remembering that there's no job that is too low for us. And for all of Christ's people to know that they are all above us. And thirdly, to follow his mandate for ministry that we need to seek to serve others, to wash the disciples' feet, so to speak. Let's pray. Lord, your instruction here is very clear. It's very simple. And yet, Lord, I'll admit it is very hard. It is very hard to follow you. 
And so we need great grace. Lord, we don't want to have fruitless ministries. We don't want pride to quench a single a single fruit piece of fruit on any branch. But Lord, we want you to produce abundant spiritual fruit because your church needs it. Lord, this city needs it. It doesn't need superficial shows, vague promises. Lord, it needs to see grace, grace lived out in the life of your church in great power. And so, Lord, we know for that to happen, the church needs humble, faithful leaders. And so we pray that you would make us such. The elders, the deacons, the husbands, community group leaders, the parents. God, cause us to be people who follow you so that we might enjoy true spiritual fruitfulness in our church. We ask all these things in Christ's name.